Hello, ho, 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 ho. It is the Devils in Details podcast. It's the Christmas special, our third year of doing this. I can't believe it. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here as always after what has been, I'm sure some people realize, a very challenging week of Business Insider, but the show goes on, and we're here with David Scott. It is great to be back, Paul, and you're right. It has been a very, uh, very trying week and, uh, and a sad week in a lot of respects. But uh, and as you said, this show must go on. That's right. And uh, look, this uh, podcast, it's one of our favorite things to do every year is to take a big look back at everything that's happened uh, and then to take a big look forward. And we have the same panel, I'm very glad to say, that we had uh, on last year's show. Um, I'm going to start with uh, Laura Fitzsimmons, who's Executive Director of Macro Sales at JP Morgan here in Sydney. How are you, Laura? I'm very well, thank you, Paul. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Um, and uh, also with us uh, here today is Joanne Masters, uh, one of our favourite economists and analysts. Um, and as I always say, um, a really brilliant inflation forecaster and somebody who's got a great understanding of how all the prices are working across the economy. Uh, Joe, it's great to have you back here. It's great to be here. As you know, I think this is the number one podcast that people should be listening to if they want to stay on top of what's happening in the economy more broadly and in financial markets. So thrilled to be back on your Christmas special. Oh, that's great to hear. Thank you. And um, it wouldn't be the Christmas special without uh, James Whelan, Investment Manager at uh, VFS Group. Hello, James. Hello, Paul. It's great to be here. Many years from now, historians will will listen to this and they will say that honest people spoke truth. <laughs> well, that's let's see how let's see how we go. I'm going to start, Dave. I'm going to start with you. Um, we have come a long way this year, right? So, I think if we go to where we were this time last year, there was a lot of talk about lower returns, right, across a range of asset classes. How has that played out? We all know that things are down a bit. So, <laughs> yes, uh, especially uh, those who are uh, dabbling long in emerging markets. But uh, it's been a very interesting year, a year where we've had a return to volatility. Uh, I think a lot of people have uh, know, been anticipating this and uh, a lot of people I know are probably a little bit more excited about financial markets now than what's been the case recently. Uh, with volatility comes opportunities. So we're seeing that this year, obviously, uh, across the, uh, the asset spectrum. Uh, very few major asset classes have actually gone up this year. It's been one of those years where so many assets have actually fallen in value. Uh, and I said at the start, obviously, emerging markets have been uh, hit particularly hard. Uh, and we'll see what happens uh, in the new year. Uh, Laura, can I ask you about steering clients through this, right? So I do know JP Morgan was among those um, uh, institutions that were saying this time last year that 2018 is going to be lower returns across a whole bunch of things. So talk to me about taking clients through all of that. Yeah, it's obviously been an interesting journey. Uh, I think overall, it, it felt like people became obviously quite anxious throughout the fourth quarter. So most of the year, we did have the, obviously the February correction, but we recovered pretty well from that. And I think the mindset really hadn't changed after that. Uh, I think it was only really as we started to get obviously the tensions with the trade wars, uh, and that seemed to be just ongoing and there wasn't really a resolution in sight, and there still really isn't, if we're honest about it. And I think that just started to feed into people questioning, you know, some of the, the long held sort of beliefs. Uh, and I think then, you know, given the backdrop of obviously the late cycle uh, and the Fed that continued to hike, suddenly people realised that things maybe were going to get quite difficult going forward. And it really has escalated very quickly in terms of that anxiousness. Uh, and you can tell that from clients, but we're still very, very active even in this month of December where normally trading volumes go down. Clients have been very busy. People have to move stuff. You know, they're, they're getting ready for next year. They're positioning. Um, so we've seen really no mutation of, of volume at all. And look, just going to the Fed, um, it really has been a remarkable year in terms of the outlook for the Fed. And I think just to wind back, um, 
for for listeners who don't follow the Fed terribly closely all the time, right? So basically, the Federal Reserve is the most important lever in in the global economy. It kind of drives the price of the dollar, and then everything else is priced to dollars, basically, um, and drives the cost of money for um, for the, the world's largest markets. So what it does and how it's thinking about things uh, sets the tone for a lot of things. So do you want to just talk about like the arc um, of the Fed's year because the picture has changed in recent weeks, hasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, next week's Fed decision is, is going to be one of the most closely watched, particularly what happens to that dot for next year, or in terms of the dots, I should say, for, for 2019 and where that median dot is. Uh, but essentially, when you think about what's happened in the US this year, I mean, of course, the fiscal impact from, from Trump has been huge. So the, the Fed had to suddenly deal with, you know, GDP numbers that, you know, were certainly coming in better than expected. Uh, suddenly, they had to start thinking maybe we will get wage inflation with the unemployment rate continuing to fall at a faster pace than anyone expected. Uh, and overall, I think, you know, obviously with a new chairman at the helm as well, it's been an interesting way for markets really to, to observe Powell because, you know, clearly he's starting, he started at a time when, when things could have been about to change, but he pretty much continued on with the pace and, uh, and obviously forewarned that, you know, the pace could continue. And then people start to worry, obviously, about restrictive monetary policy. Um, but I think what's important to remember as well, and as you mentioned, that sort of arc over everything is also that withdrawal of liquidity that the Fed is is obviously uh, doing at the moment, um, you know, and setting the tone for the other central banks eventually to follow. Uh, and that does have implications for markets. And it was a little bit slow for us to sort of see the impact of that. But I think as we started to see, you know, markets where leverage had built up in the system, such as EM, as you mentioned, you know, some of the greatest pullbacks this year have been in those markets. And that's, I think, where we're really starting to see that come home to roost. James, you've been watching emerging markets uh, very closely through the year. Um, how has your view shifted? Uh, well, uh, the uh, the big short that we put in emerging markets earlier was was criticised a bit. It did work in the end, um, just based on the strengthening US dollar, uh, a host of other reasons, and that was just based on the Fed raising interest rates and how and how that went. Uh, there were some other reasons. I can't remember what they were now. <laughs> now it seems that that as that is starting to shift, and we're starting to turn not bearish the US dollar, but starting to not add to longs as we were, because that's a super crowded trade right now. Um, we're seeing that emerging markets might just be the thing to 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 grab a hold of in 2019. Uh, so, when the US dollar does start to show signs of weakness, we'll start to to load into into an emerging market trade, most probably. Um, and that's again, everything comes back to the Fed, like you were just saying. It was everyone thought, if it, and just to sort of cast my mind back over 2018, remember everyone thought that that Powell had no put. And I actually wrote a while ago, there was no, no power put that the market can correct for as far as you want. And he's not going to budge on, on this determined effort that he had to continue to raise rates. And I think it, it might have been JP Morgan, not to stitch up anyone here, Laura, but they, <laughs> I, it was just when they finally said, OK, we're, we're, we're going to say five raises, I think it was next year, or, or they just increased the number. Someone did. And then after that, I think that's when he flinched. I wrote that Powell was acting like a man who was trying to get fired. With his, with his incessant going against Trump as hard as he could. He even commented on immigration policy. And that's a man who, that's a man who doesn't want to stick around very long. <laughs> and, and then, he, and then he's, he's blinked. Paul Tudor Jones, a couple of days ago, uh, actually said that, that, that now he's going to be one and done. So this raise next week, which th th it will be, that's a fact, that's done, um, uh, that that's going to be it. 
there, and there won't be any raising for this. This is the question, do they do two next year? Do they do four? You yeah, know? for the record, um, our call hasn't changed. So it's five between now and the end of next year. Yep. So we've, but, you know, we're getting a lot of pushback from clients, of course, about that. Uh, you know, the market's clearly erased a lot of the pricing for the, for the further hikes. So, you know, even if that three dots for next year moves to two, which is kind of where I think a lot of investors are thinking at this stage. Yeah. Um, it feels like, well, if the market's not even pricing a full one after this December hike, then what happens? Do, do we actually rally in rate futures on the back of that? Um, because the market starts to think, is there a concession coming through from the Fed and they're going to inch towards where the market is? Uh, or even that the market keeps pushing them a bit further? It's, it's really an interesting question. Um, but at the same time, you know, at the moment, we, we, we don't really even have a hike beyond this one. And I think that's an interesting you know, situation to be setting up for next year. Most of us think that's an opportunity to be short rates, but that's been a very, very hard game to play. Yeah, well said. Um, Joanne, might um, turn to you and ask about um, the uh, sort of very slight slowdown that we've seen globally. So let's go beyond the US and look at EM. And then also because this is connected to Australian, particularly our exports, um, and it's kind of shifting the picture a little bit for, for Australia and the RBA, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think when we look at the Australian economy, you know, clearly it's outward looking, relies on global growth, gets that leverage from global global growth. So that's really important. Uh, the way that we're looking at it at the moment is that we've clearly had a slowdown in momentum globally, led by EM, but, but not just EM. Uh, the reality, though, I think for Australia is it still really is a China story. So China takes 30% of our exports, the US takes 6%, right? So now, what feeds into China and, and you know, it's obviously a bigger global story. But uh, when we look at China, uh, we have seen some loss of momentum, but we still think growth sits around 6%, um, which is a little bit slower than it's been over the last few years, but, but still very, very strong. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, we are seeing a slower global momentum pulse, uh, but equally in China, we are also likely to get ongoing fiscal expansion. And a lot of that actually feeds into Australia's exports through that infrastructure space. Uh, and also, of course, we've had the Bank of uh, China easing and and we think they'll continue to ease uh, through 2019. Dave, one of the stories of this year has been the strong commodity prices. It's pretty, been pretty amazing, and it's definitely come off a little bit, but mm -hmm. maybe we can just go back through that. Oh, you'll be talking about uh, bulk commodities. A lot of it's come down to uh, supply-side reform in China and uh, looking to go and uh, clean up their uh, environment, so looking to go and uh, source more efficient uh Cleaner, uh, cleaner commodities that uh, that have definitely gone and helped. Uh, obviously, you know, especially iron ore. We saw coal, uh, in Australian coal prices, both uh, thermal uh, and also metallurgical, uh, doing quite strongly uh, early in the year. That's obviously come off a little bit. We're part and part of that is the uh, is what's going on in China and the other uh, trade tensions at the moment. But we've just seen recently this week prices started to go and pick up a little bit again. Uh, surprise, surprise, there's lots of chatter about uh, no increased uh, infrastructure spending in China and the like. So uh, it's one of those stories I can't imagine that uh, no, it would take something pretty dramatic uh, in the global economy uh, to go and see the bulks come off a lot. Uh, crude prices have been obviously the other big one. I saw you know, multi-year highs, then uh, only to plunge by you know, 30 <laughs> percent uh, in the space of just over a month. Uh, I don't think uh, no, too many people saw that coming, but that was also uh, part and parcel of you know we had this um, Iran sanctions that were uh, that were being introduced. 
uh, people were positioned for that. Then all of a sudden there were waivers granted. Uh, I had a lot of excess supply that was on the market and uh, whooshka, uh, we had a, a big, big decline. Yeah, and it, uh, well, obviously the other big part of the crude um, supply equation is what's happened in the United States in terms of production capacity. Um, so I think I saw a number that's a net exporter uh, of oil now. Which is yeah, it's been, there for, it's, been there, it's been there for a while now. Yeah, yeah. They, they became a net exporter about a year, David Scott. To oh. you, when it comes to actual real facts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, yeah, let, let me get my uh, calendar out. I, uh, I suspect it's been over a year. Yeah, it's, uh, and, it's, it's, and they've, it's got, they've got a few supplies disruptions at the moment where they've actually got the ability to go and uh, and produce more crew, but they've got uh, supply capacity and you know, actually shipping the uh, the oil through to uh, to terminals. So that's been resolved now. It's been built, uh, but uh, you know it's going to be a, a bigger uh, player and probably the biggest for quite some time now, as in terms of uh, you know, being a crude exporter. Just going back to the bulks, um, iron and coal, um, obviously a factor feeds into the level of the Australian dollar, um, which has had a, a very volatile year, but here we are, what's it, 71, 72 cents? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of been just where it's sat for most of the year. It's been extraordinary. It has been, you know, obviously we saw, and a lot of it as well, if you go and look at things like, you know, the Chinese, uh, you know, Shanghai Composite, you could actually go and map for quite a long period of time. It sounds absolutely crazy in some respects, but obviously this is a, this is a thematic about, you know, how people within China primarily are viewing the Chinese economy. It was getting sold off. The Aussie dollar almost moved in lockstep a lot with of the, the time. The, yeah. yeah, and uh, obviously you mentioned, you know, clearly commodity prices have been a, a boon for the Aussie this year. But that's been countered by, you know, widening uh, interest rate differentials. The Fed has been hiking. The RBA is uh, is on hold and appears to be on hold for the foreseeable future, if not potentially cutting. If some people are potentially, uh, you know, on the money, uh, and that's obviously weighed in as well. So you've also got you know, this this discount as to what's happening uh, with China and the U.S. trade. There's a big discount that's been applied to the Aussie dollar because of that uncertainty as to how this will be resolved. Yeah, I think it's really interesting on the Aussie at the moment, actually, because as as you said, Scotty, you've got this divergence between where commodity prices tell you and, and the sort of fair value derivative that you get from that versus that interest rate differential. And if you look back over time, those two factors tend actually to move together. Mm. It's quite unusual for them to diverge. Uh, so it's a little bit of a balancing act. And I think in some sense, that's why the currency has been volatile, but actually within a reasonably tight range, because you've had sort of shifting forces within those two key drivers. Um, Laura, do you have an outlook for the Australian dollar next year? Yeah, well, I actually think the Aussie uh, could go to 68 cents, and and that is within our forecasts as well um, in terms of the house view. Uh, You know, we do expect that the US dollar can continue at least in the first half of next year to still strengthen. Uh, Obviously, we still have the the Fed hike call um, for each quarter next year. Uh, So, you know, with that backdrop, you would see further pressure continue on the Aussie. And I think it has been really interesting, the divergence between it and commodity prices, as we just discussed. Um, And I, I, I just don't see that feature changing at the moment, even if commodities do hold in or perform better in the start of the year. But even that's doubtful. I'd say. So we keep nudging ever, uh, ever closer to saying the three magic letters, the RBA. Um, uh, let's let's get on with it. <laughs> let's just let's just jump in. Um, right. Um, so um, rate outlook for you. I might start with you, Laura. 
Well, our official outlook is that the RBA stays unchanged uh, for the next year. Uh, you know, we talked obviously at, at the uh, recent live show that you did about the risks either way, uh, you know, certainly with housing, the political side of things on the downside, uh, but also with an RBA that has told you that the next move is up. And that's all about what the market is questioning now. When are they going to change that language? Was DeBell hinting potentially, you know, in his recent speech, which was in the context of a GFC speech. So we have to remember that that was probably, you know, maybe a dovish leaning, but really because of the context of the speech. So there's a lot of debate with clients at the moment about that. Uh, but we're really waiting, you know, obviously for February when they return and uh, we and we see whether that language is still appropriate. Um, you know, look, I still think the risks, though, are that they do keep the language in. Um, you know, we, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with housing. I know it feels like we could be in a pretty dark place right now, but we're not as bearish as other, as other street forecasters on the housing situation in Australia. Um, so we do see further declines, but not as, as large as others expect. Uh, so at the same time, you know, we're kind of looking at the backdrop of the Fed and we, we do actually think that there's potentially, you know, a reason for the RBA to keep that language in and for the next move eventually to be higher. But Sally Old, uh, our chief economist, definitely, you know, is aware very much of the risks. And I think if you had to push her on what what could happen next year if they were to move either way, she'd probably be betting on a down move. If anybody uh, wants to go back through the feed uh, on Devils and Details, we had Sally on the show a few weeks ago and I got some fantastic feedback um, from listeners uh, after that show. She's incredibly crisp and she's very, very matter-of-fact about everything. Uh, uh, just great. Um, really, really great um, conversation. Now, Joe, um, uh, you guys, and you were, uh, you drove this piece of research that uh, downgraded the, um, at the housing outlook for, for Sydney and Melbourne. Um, Thanks, Joe. Okay. I thought you were going to ask me whether that was going to be my worst forecast for the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's all going that way. The, we were, our coverage this week and last, and it feels like every week now we're talking about how the price declines are accelerating uh, and we're heading into summer. Um, so how people, whether people decide, look, I'm just going to, uh, we're not going to catch any falling knives here. I'm just going to stand back and maybe have a reduction in listings um, because people decide, look, it's not a good time to sell. Um, how do you, how do you see it? Sure. So as you said, we, we downgraded our house price forecast a few weeks ago and, and on the back of that pushed our RBA rate hikes out to the back end of 2020. Now, since then, most forecasters actually have pushed their rate hikes uh, back to the uh, 2020 after the GDP numbers. In terms of the housing market, look, until the end of Q3, the, the price falls were pretty much tracking in line with our forecasts. Uh, and in fact, everywhere outside of Sydney and Melbourne, they are still tracking in line with our forecasts. But we had thought by uh, sort of this point uh, of the year that we would have some signs that the price falls in housing were decelerating. And there's absolutely no sign of that at the moment on a range of measures uh, to suggest that the weakness is actually accelerating. So obviously auction clearance rates and actual house prices, which we can measure daily, uh, but also things like vendor discounts, days on markets, new listings and the like. So, uh, so in a sense, we were mark to market kind of forced to revise down our numbers. Um, I think this cycle is really hard to forecast, right? It's a really unique cycle. It's very different. It's being driven by the availability of credit, not interest rates per se or the price of credit. We can't measure the availability of credit. We don't know how much more tightening, if any, might be coming through. Uh, but what we do know is that the tightening that's even already in the system is sort of broadening out. And you can see that in the average size of mortgages for owner occupiers now is starting to roll over. And the price weakness in 
New South Wales and Victoria is extending right across the price spectrum and actually outside of the capital city. So uh, we think we're about halfway through the adjustment. Uh, so that means peak to trough in Sydney and Melbourne will be something down 15 to 20% of that order. That will be the largest fall that uh, the Australian market has experienced. But we also need to look at it in the context of the rise that we had. So even if you get a 20% fall from the peak um, to trough, as as we're expecting it at the back, you know, largest part of our forecast range there, that takes prices back to a 2015 level. So back of the envelope, unless you unless you purchased your property after 2015 and you didn't... Um, Hard luck, James. <laughs> James putting his hand up. Just doing the numbers. <laughs> yeah. uh, but 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 you would have to have been a marginal borrower, i.e., you you weren't caught up in what was already tightening up actually of credit standards. You know, you're still going to have positive equity in your house. So I'm not suggesting there aren't some people that will experience some difficulty. But if we look at the system as a whole, actually, this market can absorb that level of fall. Dave, it's been interesting, hasn't it? Um, you know, the last six months, every Monday. Yeah, lots of interest. Um, surprisingly enough, uh, look, I can't disagree with uh, with Joanne's call. It's, um, I I can't see that the uh, restrictions on credit that we've seen in place resolved anytime soon. Whether they're going to become even tighter is is the question that no one really knows. We'll find out probably more information after the Banking Royal Commission uh, reports in February. Correct. Uh, and then when those recommendations are handed down, the time to go and implement that through bank systems and to be able to go and then actually to uh, apply to people who are loan applicants will probably take a significant period of time as well. Uh, as for the risks as to whether something becomes, you know, greater, uh, a, a bigger housing market correction than what many people are anticipating. Uh, it comes down to the labour market. Obviously, we've got federal election that's, uh, that's likely to go and occur in May next year. Uh, we know that employment in the past has slowed down before that event, uh, the uncertainty that that will go and create as well. So uh, if there's going to be a particular catalyst, domestically at least, uh, I know if it's going to get worse, it'll be the labour market deteriorating quite sharply. The caveat of that comes that we're not seeing any real signs of that at the moment. Uh, but so no, that's something that everyone will have to be watching very closely, including the RBA next and, year. And this is the thing, like it's important to talk about the risks, um, but sometimes it can also be, and I think one of the things that, uh, you know, if you look at media coverage of the economy, like we talk about the risks an awful lot, um, which means that there's less space for talking about the stuff that's good. Um, I'm glad you said that because one of the things I'm saying to our clients at the moment is just be cognizant of getting too negative at the peak of negativity and you know everything you read on housing at the moment is negative uh, but cycles don't you know prices don't fall forever right um, economics tells us that you get a supply and a demand response that creates a new equilibrium and even with tightening and credit conditions I mean, this is hard because it's sort of death by a thousand cuts, but eventually the market does find a new equilibrium. People get used to the fact that, that the amount of credit they can access is a bit lower. They get used to the fact that they have to fill out a bigger form, that it takes longer. So markets don't fall forever. And actually, if you're looking for a few positives in the housing market, uh, the uh, Consumer Confidence Survey by uh, one of our competitors has a question around, is it now a good time to buy a house? And actually, that has accelerated in the last few months. Now, there's a difference between thinking it's a good time to buy a house and actually going and buying one. But nonetheless, that's important. And also there's the ANZ Google Trends 
uh, index, which looks at house price searches, and that has also picked up in the last few months. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that tells you that perhaps, you know, affordability is already improving. Uh, on our numbers, it will improve uh, considerably more. It's still going to be tough in Sydney and Melbourne. I don't deny that. But affordability improves that actually ultimately eventually picks up some demand. And as you said, new listings are starting to slow. So the market finds a new equilibrium that doesn't fall forever. Yeah. And then one of the things as well that we need to remember, and it's not necessarily, it was well, certainly not a good thing for the economy short term, but we're already seeing a supply response through building approvals have, have, drawn, have fallen quite dramatically, uh, particularly for apartments uh, in Sydney and Melbourne. So that is part of that process, that adjustment process, whereas, okay, okay, well, prices are falling now, let's go and stop building as many as what we've been doing. We already had a record pipeline of, of supply that was, uh, that was being built only earlier this year. So that's already you know, starting to go and feed in. And over the time, you'll start seeing that will go and support prices eventually. It's, I've got my eyes peeled everywhere I go in Sydney now, just watching like the activity on those construction sites. And the thing that keeps me a little bit reassured is that there's still the guys with the um, high-vis jackets outside. So there, there's things going on. It's, I think, what I would be watching for, for that would like make me raise an eyebrow would be if the you stopped seeing activity around those construction sites um that would be hang on a second what's happened there yeah so in sydney at the moment at the current construction rate there's two years worth of construction activity that has already commenced and yet to be completed nationwide there's over 40 billion dollars worth of construction so i'm not worried about construction in the next 18 months or so but as Scuddy said, building approvals have weakened considerably. So we're not adding to that pipeline. So that resi construction story, that weakness from an economy point of view is something that I worry about for 2020, 2021. One of the themes this year, uh, sorry, James. There was just a little addition on that that, that, that I wanted. So uh, being friends with a lot of builders and always sort of tapping for information wherever I can is I'm seeing something that's, that reminds me of when the GFC hit and people stopped taking overseas holidays and they started going locally. So there was no real, no real impact. So it, it, and then we had a sort of a semi-boom here locally with, a, with our local tourist industry. What's happening now is that instead of people buying, knocking down and rebuilding a house, they're actually doing improvements inside. There has been no slowdown from that, from that retail building site. So that, that was seen in the GDP report, wasn't it? The, uh, the uh, alterations, alterations and additions, additions. actually you know, contributed to, uh, to GDP growth. So no, you're, you're exactly right. There are three houses on, on our street, which I found surprising. Three houses on our street where there's currently getting a bit, a bit of a makeover. Yeah. So I, th I think that's nice exactly right. You know, yeah. Often in a falling market, people look to upgrade if they can. In this market, perhaps upgrading is a little bit harder because access to credit has been tightened up. So what do you do? Well, you renovate the house that you have. And actually, that's a reflection of the fact that most people still have an enormous amount of equity or wealth in their existing home. Yeah. They must be watching Love and Enlisted on, uh, on Foxtel. Can, can, I, can I just quickly... It's not a base case scenario for anybody, but can I quickly uh, raise the R word? Um, I had my three magic letters earlier, um, RBA, but can I quickly just talk about this? Because one of the things that would potentially push Australia into a contraction would oh, would be um, yes, would be into a, like would be would have a recession if there was a very very if that if those price declines really accelerated from here kept continued to accelerate. That is a risk. Can I ask you about that? Like, how do you think about it, Laura? Well, it's, it's hard, I think, for a lot of people in the market because it's been so long, you know, more than 20 years without a recession. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, we, we pointed out at the beginning of this year that 
particularly when people are talking about a recession in the US. That's what's interesting. You know, it doesn't always have to happen every 10 years, this late cycle thing. I mean, you know, Australia is a prime example of that. But in many ways, I feel we were saved by China, obviously, through the GFC. And, and I think, uh, you know, we were quite lucky to avoid some of the, the banking issues at that time. Uh, but still, you know, it feels like, you know, certainly you can put a story together where this could happen. So, yeah, it's no one's base case. Um, but I think people have certainly upped the probability uh, in the after the recent GDP in particular. But they were concerns that, you know, in terms of what came through in the lower consumption, that's what we had been looking for at the beginning of the year. And, and the numbers were all coming in so strong. So I think Australia, you know, it goes through these periods where it gets saved by trade or, or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, in that way, we are the lucky country. And we'll probably somehow manage to muddle through. It really, not, it really is remarkable. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. And even if you do, like if the RBA does need to cut and, you know, and the, but the Aussie goes to 60 and all of a sudden we're on sale, you mm. know. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I think you raise a really good point around that trade and around the currency. Actually, the Australian dollar does its job uh, and that's not true always of other economies because their currencies can be impacted by other factors so the US dollar for example does, doesn't just reflect domestic economic conditions in the US so the currency is something that does move here and we, we do have that sort of outward looking export um, type part of our economy so it responds to that weaker currency. it does it does and um, uh, a great shock absorber and um, like when you can contrast the situation Australia's in um, to say Europe, where you know you've got a patchwork economy, lots of different types of industries, lots of different types of risks, different banking systems, all of that kind of stuff in in um, the various member states of the of the EU. Um, but you've got one central bank uh, that sets the rate for everybody. You know, and like if you look again, draw the parallels with Australia. Like there's WA could probably do with. Western Australia could probably do with rates being a little bit lower right now, um, or, you know, or if you were to tailor it to, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, they would have preferred rates being 100 basis points lower. But the bank has to set it at some point. Yeah. Um, and I, I see that as a positive, though, mm -hmm. because I think that uh, actually, if you look at Australia's experience after the GFC, what we've seen is an economy that is actually more than just a mining economy, that is actually quite nimble and quite flexible. So, you know, we had the mining boom, which was quite unique, uh, but helped save us effectively from that post-GFC recession. But since then, we've seen the services side of the economy uh, really pick up as mining unwound. Uh, and we saw that boom in New South Wales and Victoria and some really exciting developments around the services side and signing of things like Chapter that included access to China for a lot of our services, healthcare, uh, financial services, uh, insurance services, architects, engineers. All of those things are relatively new for the Australian economy and actually I think really exciting when we look at the period ahead. So I think we've got a much more diverse economy than we've ever had and that actually helps to extend this long run of economic growth. James, are you um, optimistic about um, how things look for Australia? Not particularly. No. <laughs> No, that's because Well, that's it. I'm off. Uh, no, the, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, I'm not super. I'm not super optimistic. I think that that based on us being the cold when the rest of the world has a sneeze, um, I think the rest of the world is having a bit of a sneeze. And if you know, you love my stupid metaphors, mate. That's the best that I've got on the short notice. <laughs> the the. I think that what, what Joe has put together has been fan, uh, fantastic and it, and that is true. It's not the most bearish thing that it, that, that it's that we've ever seen. There's there's positives in every single way that you can go. There's one thing that's with regards to housing and housing for me is everything. If you can't build a new house and fill it with stuff and with the, the wife and the kids and 
grow an economy, then things sort of stop happening. So whilst it may be time for people to start thinking about buying a house and they're doing the Google search thing, can they actually get money to buy a house? And the Royal Commission has shown uh, at, that lending has well, not stopped, but it's become almost impossible for people to now actually to get debt to buy a house. No, that's a bit dramatic, I'm sorry, but uh, it's, become, it's become difficult and maybe rightly so. Maybe it's definitely over-tightened. Banks have, banks have gone over the top with regards to increasing their lending standards just because they don't want to go through this nightmare that has been the Royal Commission over the last year. Um, I, I just break out in a sweat thinking about encountering Rowena or, you know, just, just in a casual conversation because I think that she'd, <laughs> she'd tear me apart and I love her. She's fantastic. She's done so well. The, uh, the, uh, and I think that that might just be the thing that, that holds us up a bit with that, that lending and, and banks actually being able to give people money, especially young people who now can actually get into the market, can they actually get debt to do so? That could be a bit of a, a, bit of a slow start. Well, the thing is, if the market gets back to a point where prices are even lower than when they, where they are, that's when the credit will eventually, you'll get the credit supply re response that it's like, okay, well, the market's down at a certain level here. Um, we wouldn't lend you the money six months ago because prices were too high and you were asking for too much. But now we're at a point where we can talk again. So the RBA research shows that for owner-occupiers, about uh, two-thirds of owner-occupiers only draw down 70% of their maximum borrowing capacity. So even if their borrowing capacity has come down by 30%, those two-thirds of owner-occupiers can still access the amount of credit they need to buy the home that they want. Uh, now, obviously, that leaves one third that, that can't. Um, but, you know, credit has tightened undeniably. But um, I think there's still enough credit in the system to not tip the economy into recession. Now, there's a obviously, there's a risk there. And I do agree credit growth is everything. If you don't have credit growth, it's pretty hard to generate broader economic growth. Dave, what do you think about this? Um, before we go to a break, I might uh, just hand over to you and just ask you, like, what do you think about Australia now next year? We're vulnerable, but it's very difficult for Australia to go and have a recession, a real GDP recession, when you've got population growth, which is 1.6% per annum. Uh, we saw in the uh, third quarter of, uh, of this year that uh, no real GDP per capita went backwards. Uh, I think it's much more likely that you'd see a per capita recession uh, or maybe an income recession uh, if things were to go really awry in the labour market and also with the commodity prices. Uh, but it's, it's an enviable and a desirable place for many people to like come here and, and be here. So when you've got such strong demand for you know, people to go and live and reside here uh, and not just you know, the opportunities it offers but also the lifestyle choices and, and security and that sort of things which are really important to people, it's really difficult to go and see even if there was to be like some sort of downturn, a, a sharp but maybe a shallow downturn uh, that the reaction would be the Aussie dollar would fall dramatically. Uh, things would become dramatically cheaper for people overseas. Uh, and then you have all the other things that Australia offers. Uh, are we any more at risk of, of a recession next year than what we've been, say, like in the past decade? You can maybe arguably say a little bit, but uh, no, these things have been ever-present. We've seen all the reports. I remember the live podcast I was talking about uh, year after year. We've seen the banner ads on various websites talking about uh, Australia Recession Report 2009, 2010, 11, 12, 13. Uh, these things have been spoken about for a very, very long time and nothing's actually come to fruition. 
Yeah, it's um, it's certainly going to be an interesting year. We're going to talk about 2019 uh, after the break, uh, and we'll also um, have a quick chat about our naughty and nice list, our, uh, our best and worst calls of the year. We'll be right back. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. And our guests on the show for our annual Christmas edition, um, our look back at the year that's been, and to look now at the year uh, ahead. We're here with Laura Fitzsimmons, Executive Director at uh, Macro Sales at JP Morgan. Um, we're, we're here with Joanne Masters, ANZ Senior Economist, and James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. Okay, um, next year, um, Laura, I'm going to start with you. Um, we talked a little bit about the Fed. Um, obviously, we mentioned as well about how influential the Fed is across all financial markets. Um, so how do you think it plays out? Yeah, well, I mean, as I mentioned before, we still have that pretty punchy Fed forecast. Um, you know, so we've got a hike coming next week and then four more. Um, and I, I do think that, as I said, you know, the Aussie will go lower, um, you know, in terms of one of my calls for next year, that would be it, that, you know, 68 cents is actually even not that far away. Uh, but I think people, it has enough of a sticker shock. I think people still think, oh, sub 70, really? Uh, but, uh, you know, we've certainly been a massive underperformer this year. We've had a decent correction. The RBA, I think, have been a bit surprised that it's finally happened. I think they'd wanted it for some time. Uh, and it's probably gone a little bit further than they expected. Uh, but at the same time, it feels like there's still those pressures there for it to continue. Uh, uh, Joanne, how do you see um, the next year? What do you think the big themes are going to be? Right, so talk about this. Maybe housing will, this, these falls will bottom out. Um, that'll be your base case, I'm, I'm assuming, sure. at some point. So I think if we're thinking about um, the domestic economy and domestic factors, the number one risk has to be the household. Consumption 60% of the economy. Uh, we've got falling house prices. As I said, we think we're about halfway through the adjustment, so there's further falls to come. Uh, wage growth is still anemic. Household debt is at record highs. And the savings rate, of course, has fallen to a little above 2%. So that would be the, the one thing that uh, that that we're looking at. Um, for the moment, things kind of look okay. As Laura said, actually, the consumer has held up really well. Consumer confidence is above its long run average. But if you've got something that shocked the housing market sort of further on the downside, or we saw something, as Scuddy mentioned, around the labour market, so jobs growth suddenly disappeared, then I'd be very worried about the domestic consumer. Um, so, uh, James, what are you, you were talking about gold a couple of weeks ago. I was talking was about gold a couple of weeks ago. Nobody's been talking about gold for ages. No, and and there's. Uh, remember when gold? There was a time in a way when gold would be the thing that you'd invest in when the the, the threat of nuclear war came up, or there was some issue in the Middle East. Now, remember uh, when the uh, the Koreans. And the North Koreans mm -hmm. tested. We were testing their, you know, nuclear uh, arsenal, and mm -hmm. Trump moved the the carrier fleet. That was March last year. It was uh, when he moved the aircraft carrier off the coast of North Korea. Gold barely even moved, and that was that was the final tell that okay, you don't buy gold now for that as that safe haven, and it's never been a good investment for so long that you just couldn't do it. And gold now is something that I'm trying to say and also learn because I never get gold right and I can't believe that I have done so far since since we made our long call that gold is the is the last haven of there's nothing else to invest in when all other asset classes and things and currencies are off the table then gold suddenly becomes the only the, the place of last resort so equity markets um, probably not going to be as nice next year as you'd want them to be so find an alternative. Um, okay, let's you go wouldn't want to look at the equity markets every day this year. It's <laughs> like 
It is. It has been. Yeah. Rough. It's 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 volatile, and I remember Laura said at the. Uh, uh, yeah, at, at the live podcast, there's volatility increases. There it might have been Eleanor, but the, uh, the just uh, just that's what you've got to get used to. Mm. So even if you invest in it, do you really want to add that volatility to your portfolio? US USD, which is usually the safe haven where people go to, is becoming, like I said before, a little bit overbought and may not be the place where you want to be adding longs to it. So you, you need to find some other places to go. Maybe yen. Definitely, Europe sort of seems like it could be going a bit funny. Stay away from England. That's that's a basket case. It was oh only last God, year we were sitting here, we were sitting here just going, well, at least this time next year Brexit will be solved. Uh, <laughs> it is. It ain't. <laughs> that gets um, the worst call of the worst call. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, Dave hates Brexit, by the way. I I, um, I don't care for it much myself. But but and that's it. So gold gold is now and it's starting to come on the radar of a lot of places and a lot of notes are starting to come out now saying let's maybe have a think about looking at maybe thinking about looking at maybe gold. Yeah. Just dip a toe, yeah. the smallest of toes in that. John Norman, our head of cross-asset strategy, I think a couple of weeks ago or maybe up to a month ago now, he recommended that it could go 15% higher next year. So wow, that's he's a big had the, Yeah, so that's one of his biggest conviction calls for next year and what's going to be a very tricky year to, to call anything higher. He, he is a great strategist, by the way. Uh, his notes are always worth, uh, worth a look. I think I often get a note from him on Mondays, um, cross-asset strategy. John Norman's uh, everybody. Um, look out for him. He's at JP Morgan. Um, Dave? What do you think is going to be interesting? Um, personal view is that I suspect the US dollar is not going to be the shining star that it's been this year. Um, nor do I suspect that uh, anything that uh, doesn't run a current account surplus is going to be a stellar, uh, stellar currency next year. I expect the US economy will slow quite sharply. I'm not expecting the Fed to go and hike um, as aggressively uh, as, as, as some are currently expecting. Uh, we know that they're data dependent now. Uh, obviously, we'll see what happens with the job market in particular there, because I think that's what is driving a lot of this. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a miss um, the other day. It was. It wasn't a horrible report by any any stretch. Uh, and uh, we're still talking about uh, enough payrolls growth, which is enough to go and keep the unemployment rate slowly grinding lower. But uh, I just think next year will not will be the end of the the end of the uh, exceptionalism uh, for US dollar assets. Um, I can always just roll out more fiscal stimulus, though, you know. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. But uh, I think uh, I expect the volatility that we're seeing this year will continue, and uh, if not, get a little bit more greater next year. So automatically, you know, uh, feeds into the, the playbook of you know gold might go and perform, uh, particularly if you go and do it in various uh, different currencies, maybe not US dollars, uh, and the yen uh, obviously is a safe as an asset. Uh, I think it'll be one of those tough sort of nerve jangling kind of years for investors. So talk to me about Brexit quickly. Um, I know you've got some, you've got <laughs> some views. David hates Brexit. How about Brexit? <laughs> yes, uh, Brexit is hard for me to get enthusiastic about. Um, this is no disrespect to uh, Fleet Street and uh, all the various publications uh, that get uh, written around the world, but I suspect that they have to sell a lot of newspapers and drum up a lot of interest, and there's naturally a lot of people who live in Europe as well. But I suspect what the fallout of this potential Brexit, even a hard Brexit in the, uh, on the global economy would be, you know, a rounding error. I honestly don't think it would be that great a thing uh, as long as the, uh, if they can get the financial market side of things sorted. And that is the key thing. Uh, I don't suspect that uh, no, many people you know, in Asia will really give two hoots. That's personal opinion. Big for Europe, though, because, you know, you look at where the European project, like high level, the European project, somebody's left now, right? So, you know, and 
so you're, you're, you're down a member. Mm. Um, also big for the tens of millions of people who live there, and mm. massive for Ireland, um, like enormously confusing. And I'm not sure if we've talked through this on the show before, but like one of the problems there is like the economy across the border is so integrated now, right? So if you're a farmer in Donegal, which is in the Republic, um, but you've got um, your processing plant over in, uh, over across the border, um, what do you do? Right. So, and like, what are the standards that um, the UK is going to apply to those things? So, if you if you process it across the border, bring it back to Donegal and try and sell it as Irish milk, you're like, hang on, what were the standards that the UK applied for that processing? And now, is it a European product? Does it meet European standards, or does it meet right? So, and then one of the other things that's been pointed out to me, and I think this is a fascinating uh, situation, is Britain, without being outside of Europe. Um, because it's just smaller than the EU, um, ipso facto, uh, it has less leverage in negotiations and free trade agreements. So when they do go into start negotiating with other countries, and Australia being one of them, um, they might compromise some things on standards in order to get the deal closed. But of course, then the problem is they go back and try and sell those products into Europe, and Europe says, well, hang on, they don't meet what we need. And then you have questions about trade barriers, Europe retaliating um, at a, 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 in a trade negotiation, right? So we've already got this tension between the US and China. What happens if it starts kicking off between Britain and, and Europe? So they are all, look, and that's gross speculation, right? None of this might come to pass. You know, they might agree lots of things on standards, and I'll be fine. They'll figure out a way to do it at the border, all of that kind of stuff. But I think that is a very optimistic, rosy scenario. The problem with Brexit is it's so complicated, there actually isn't a solution. Don't get me wrong. The UK economy will, will suffer, particularly a hard Brexit. It will suffer. I've got no doubt about that. But from a broader macro, like global perspective, no, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as much of a drum. We saw what happened on that Brexit uh, no, referendum day, and half the adjustment happened on that particular day. Uh, the same thing will happen. We have a hard Brexit. What will happen? The pound will plunge. And as we were talking about the shock absorber the Australian dollar is, it will provide, yes, it will be nasty for the UK economy for a bit. Is it going to be enough to go and really lead to a, a massive slowdown in the global economy? I, I beg to differ. So my summary on, on Brexit, though, is... The UK, I was in London um, back in uh, October, and it's just, it looks so great, and it's so vibrant, and it's just, what a town. Um, but as uh, um, somebody who's in a trader said to me at the time, he said, look around, like we were just marvelling at how just wonderful London looked in the evening. And he said, yeah, but look, here's the thing. You know, they're on a market of half a trillion people, 500 billion people, free movement of labour and capital, and they're leaving. Out they go. So, I don't know. We'll see. Um, Maybe we should... Well, this is easily going to be uh, the best and worst course of uh, 2019, so we already we already have a bet on. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it'll happen. I don't think Brexit goes ahead. Postpone? Pushback? Another referendum? Another referendum. Yeah. yeah. They'll pull it. They're in a situation, and I, I don't want to be that guy, but... <laughs> you are that guy. For, <laughs> I don't want to be that guy, but I've been saying it won't happen for a long time. Ireland has done this multiple times, like where they've tried to pass European treaties, and the government gets complacent about it and thinks like, well, you know, here's, we need to amend the constitution. Please vote for our, the thing that we talked to Europe about last week. So the Nice Treaty was a really good example. Um, they took it to the country. 
it lost like 40, 60, something like this. And everybody's like in complete shock. And then the government goes back and says, look, that wasn't what we meant to ask you. What we actually meant to say was, here's the real question. Um, but it was really, you know, um, so I, I, I see absolutely there being a place for a second referendum. and. Um, Vote for it again. <laughs> Theresa May certainly getting her frequent fly miles up. I know going back and forth to Brussels every second day. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, tight, it's hard to keep up with what's going on. Yeah. So there may be a second referendum. Um, we'll see. Um, uh, maybe Jeremy Corbyn will be in charge of it. Um, we'll say. But like as you said, James, you know they might just uh, they might just reject it again. They might vote to leave. If they'll you, vote if you to leave again, they can't be helped after that. I'm sorry. There's nothing more I can do for you. It's it's it's. You're, you're, you're a basket case, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, look, let's uh, go through my favorite part of the show, um, best and worst calls of the year. Um, who wants to start? Uh, James, you were just talking, so you can start. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, best and worst calls. I was, I was going to go for best and worst clangers on the, on the whole side uh, that went through. And I've got one that, that fits into both categories on this. And it's going to be, oh, there's been a lot of good calls, a lot of bad calls on this one company that has had everyone talking for an entire year, and that's Tesla. Imagine if you were short, imagine if in this market, the one short you held for the last few months was Tesla, which is just touching all time, about to go back to all time highs now, whilst the market has gone down 10%. It's been a very divisive company. Um, Elon Musk has caused a lot of headlines and a lot of scandal. Um, and it's always the Twitter, just isn't it? People with their Twitter accounts. The, but yeah, it's 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 funding secured. That's funding right. secured. That's what yeah. a moment that and was. And everything and everything just fell apart after that. And one of your extraordinarily good guests has been vocal, um, not actively short, but but definitely anti. And John Hempton has been very, very anti the company with regards to. It doesn't matter if they can actually produce these magical cars because the big companies can just be able to switch on their production in electric vehicles like that. They just have to change this and this and this and, and, and go on with it, which is his one of his reasons there. But yes, abs absolutely. It's been a best call and a worst call for a lot of people on that uh, too. Dave, might, uh, do you want to throw out one? I'm just trying to think. I, I Honestly, I don't have anything that's pre-prepared, so I'd probably have to come back to me if, you, if that's okay. has been a busy week. Yeah, It has. Um, a yeah. few things going. Yeah. <laughs> Laura. For me, uh, I definitely got sucked into all the oil mania that was going on in September. And as Dave pointed out before, no one really saw this crash coming in oil. Uh, and one of my probably my worst time recommendations of the year was to recommend short Euro Norway as, a, as an FX play. Um, because clients were all saying to me, you know, what's a good way to have a, an oil trade on? What's a good oil proxy for it to go above $100? And, uh, you know, by that stage, oil was already up above 80. It was hard to buy it then. Uh, but uh, certainly that, that didn't play out very well at all. Awesome. Um, well done for putting a, your own hand up. That's, well, hey, you've got to be, <laughs> you've got to take the good with the Take bad. The good with the bad. I think uh, in terms of good calls though, um, and I think it was probably a pretty um, an easy call last year, uh, but it was just that volatility was going to increase in 2019, I'm oh, sorry, 2018, uh, but clearly we'd had such low vol in 2017. So it wasn't exactly a very ambitious call, mm. but it did turn out right. But, it was, but this was the thing, it was years of no volatility. Everybody's staring around, staring at each other going, when is this actually going to kick I off? Know. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, sorry, no, no, go on, go on, Paul. No, no, I, I was going to say that that don't I don't say it was an easy call because a lot of people went broke over the last year or two buying the VIX. Well, the XIV. But yeah, mm, yes. sorry about those That's guys. It. That's there, there, right. There, there, yeah. there was one. There was one shop. I, I, it just escapes my mind, but uh, they were banging on about this for a long time, and then when that uh, that happened in February and just stock shit off a cliff and uh, volatility spiked to, you know, I think it was the largest one day move ever or, or no in, in several years. Uh, but that was just absolutely amazing. Um, Joanne, do you have a 
Yeah, so um, personally, for me, probably the housing market's been uh, been my bugbear. Uh, you know, we've not not just not just ANZ, but actually everyone really. Uh, you know, a lot of people expecting a slowdown, but not expecting the degree of slowdown that we've had. So there's been a little bit of tail chasing on that, and and that's obviously then reverberates through some of your other forecasts. Uh, in terms of things, though, that, uh, that that we've got right, I mean, we've had a pretty good Aussie dollar. Call. Uh, we've got the Aussie down at 67 cents in the middle of next year, and we've had that call for a while now, and and that's playing out sort of as we expected. And the labour market's been playing out as we've expected. We've been reasonably positive on the labour market. Unemployment rates come down a bit faster than we thought, but of course, you know, there have been other forecasters that had expected the unemployment rate to nudge back up towards six percent. So pretty happy on that front. Okay, well, among my worst calls, I think going back to the start of the year, there was lots of people who were still talking about cryptocurrency still being a thing. Um, so, um, there, and it's like I, I've, I've, I occasionally see these things floating past, and like Ethereum, which is the kind of like the second core after um, it after now? Bitcoin, it's just <laughs> it's just dwindling into non-existence. And um, I think that was a I think that was a bad incident in financial markets i think for particularly when when you all look at the way people got caught up into it and lots of people were like well it's secure and it's transferable and it's like yeah but what can you do with it you can't buy anything with it it's you know you don't um, think it was a, a creation and a creature of uh, ultra easy monetary policy settings for years that's that's how i suspected it came about it was one of those things let's where, invent something where to ever, throw money at but uh, it also became very retail didn't it mm. you know so i think your point paul is that people got caught up in the hype but didn't actually really understand what they were buying um, let me touch on one other thing um, in terms of a best call. Rosalind Kogan, and I think one of his co-founders, um, I remember the statement very well. It was basically the frame was around it where regrettably, um, you know, Ro Rosalind has decided to part with, um, you know, a few million shares in the company. But like, talk about picking the top. Yeah. It was like <laughs> 30 bucks or something and it's now down at like 17 or whatever. You just timed it. Absolutely, like it was exactly the top of the share price, uh, and he sold that down. And um, it, it is uh, with a, it is with a heavy a heart. Yeah, it is with a heavy heart that we must relinquish these shares. They made us that the, they made us an offer that we absolutely cannot, due to other circumstances, we have to do it. And they just filled their boots, and it's fantastic. Yeah, Afterpay, Afterpay did a massive raise right at the top of their share price as well. Oh, right. That was a colossal raise that they did, and a lot of people went into that. And are still waiting for it to come back to, the, to that price that they raised at. I mean, do you want to talk about AMP? Afterpay after has been a, a really interesting story of the year, but you were going to say AMP? I was going to say AMP. I was going to say AMP and then IOOF recently as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, after what happened to AMP, and that was just on very easy stuff that came out of the Royal Commission, and when we went short IOOF, that just seemed like it was a very, very easy thing that, that, that happened. And then it just fell off a cliff. Last now Apra's after them, wants to ban the MD. They're gone, they won't be back, I, I don't believe so. And I think that, not to, I don't like talking about single stock stuff too carefully, there might be another leg in a downwards direction when they actually start to... Because what IWF has sort of been doing is that they make acquisitions every year and that sort of buries their real numbers under big one-offs. So when they start to do some more digging, they'll see that... that there's just and, and then this big diaspora that happens in the advisor's Definitely session. something, yeah, de definitely something to watch. Yeah. Um, Dave, any ideas on, um, uh, 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 like, any, any of your favourite moments from the year? 
Oh, in terms of best and worst calls, you know, in terms, like, I've I've enjoyed this year. Uh, I've having uh, my background in financial markets. It's been a welcome return to uh, some interesting things. Um, uh, I've loved every minute of it. It's been some uh, some crazy times, and uh, just looking forward to uh, another year. I suspect it will be probably much the same. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do remember. Um, I think a particular highlight for me was being in Tianjin at the uh, World Economic Forum and seeing Li Keqiang speak. Um, who you know? So we sort of see these guys on TV, and you know, but and you never really sit down and watch a whole speech. But being in the room with him, he spoke for like forty minutes and all the pauses and the intonation and everything and you've got a real-time translation um and you see that like this is a guy who completely commands a room but he's also frankly pretty intimidating so you know and talking about like if the rules on it was talking about like the protection of intellectual property all that kind of things all that stuff that china is expected to get on top of um and he said the people who don't follow the rules they will be punished and just when you sort of consider like what the punishment options are available to uh, you know <laughs> um we'll see so you know um maybe we'll get him on the podcast next year yeah yeah we'll, we'll invite him yeah yeah um, any other any other calls highlights for you, Laura? Well, I think generally, I mean, in terms of the the trade wars, I mean, for us day to day in markets, obviously the tweets and you know back and forth, it's really really hard to trade. We understand, but it is certainly one uh, real exciting movie to be watching. Uh, you know what I mean? And uh, unfortunately, it's just changed the way that people have to invest now. Um, and uh, you know, so for me, watching that. Um, I mean, it, it's more from a sort of an academic perspective. It's very, very interesting. Um, but I, I do appreciate it's just become so much more challenging for, for our clients. Yeah, it's certainly every morning, uh, you know, you get up and you're like, some, there are some days now where you go, really, what? what what's happened? You know, and it, it actually takes a bit of time to yeah. piece it together yeah. because yeah. there's not maybe one catalyst for, right. for what's happened in the overnight markets. Um, yeah. And I think that you're seeing that play out in politics as well. So mm. I, I would agree with you. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and I tend to look at it through that economics prism. But actually, if you're working in financial markets or you're an economist now, you also have to be a political analyst. Mm. Yes. Uh, and yeah. that intersection between social media and politics and the economy is absolutely fascinating. And I think there's a lot more there to come in the year ahead. Mm. All of that stuff, uh, Joanne, is right at the heart of what Business Insider does. So That's great. That is um, something that we're looking forward to tackling next year. Do you think the trade war will be concluded by this time next year when we're sitting here? The same way that we talked about Brexit last year? Anyone? Well, um, I think negotiation between governments on trade, the old paradigm of free trade is good for everybody, uh, I think... That was, we basically lived in a little golden age that we saw where there was this kind of consensus on global trade, um, uh, more and more open uh, uh, exchanges of goods and services and people between countries. Um, and that appears to be over. And people will, I think governments will, con you'll continue to see governments get into power where they'll have an agenda where they'll use trade tariffs or r relations with other countries uh, as a as a means of trying to get what they want. Um, and I certainly think, you know, China is in this world now where and China is going to continue to be the most important, um, you know, economic force over the next couple of decades as it grows uh, and continues to develop its industries. Um, and they are building some experience with these policy tools right now. So I think that is going to be down the track. We'll still be talking about it, yeah. 
Okay, um, we might wrap it up. We'll be covering all of it. Uh, and Joe, thanks very much for um, you know talking about how the, all of that risk is. Uh, so you know, it's this new thing um, that's in financial markets. Um, and uh, like I said, uh, something tweet risk. Tweet risk, and um, something that you know that's one of the things that's really at the core of Business Insider. And you know, um, writing about that particular type of risk. And um, we're looking forward to continuing to bring you all of that uh, news throughout 2019. Okay, we're going to wrap it up. It's um, uh, uh, it's been a great chat. Um, it's been our Christmas special, our annual naughty and nice list, and great to you know to sit around with this panel. Hopefully next year we'll be able to do it all over again because uh, it's always a great chat. Our guests on the show have been uh, Laura Fitzsimmons, who's Executive Director of Macro Sales at J.P. Morgan here in Sydney, uh, Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. Thanks so much for coming on the show. James Whelan, uh, Investment Manager at VFS Group, uh, and David Scott, Global Markets and Economics Editor here at Business Insider. Did everybody have a good time? We did. Loved it. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Okay. Uh, have a great Christmas, everybody. There may be one more show before um, before the break, uh, but then after that, we're going to take off for the summer, uh, and we'll be back first week in February. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, you can find most of us on Twitter as well uh, individually. The show is also produced by Rick Salter. Hey, Rick, uh, great job this year. Thank you so much for everything. Do you want to shout? You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rick is always here, does the, uh, does the show, uh, helps us... Uh, um, walk back our, any of our errors and, uh, uh, and always gets the, um, the show and the guests uh, coming up sounding great. So thank you so much, Rick. Uh, you're a star. Um, okay, the show uh, is now on Spotify under Devils and Details. You can subscribe on there. Um, it's on iTunes under Devils and Details or wherever else you get your podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time.